to a time in your life when you were saved. When you were brought from death to life. Think back to that time in your life. For some of you, it may have been when you were a young, young child. And you don't really remember a whole lot before. But you know what? You were brought from death to life. For some of you, you may have had a painful, painful past. And God plucked you out of that. And he brought you to life through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's a miraculous story. But I want us to just consider, when was it that he saved you? And how did he save you? So just think about that as we're starting this morning. But as we begin this morning, this is a morning that those of us who have been going through the book of Esther have been waiting for. There has been so much pain and sorrow and difficulty and tough turn after tough turn that finally we get to a passage that makes you go, yes, God is on his throne. And that's what we're going to look at today. Vindication finally happens. After all that pain, the righteous in Christ are longing to hear this perfect story of Mordecai and Esther. They win. So let's get to it. Verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. The first words, on that day, on that very day. So if you missed last week, that's the very day that Haman died. Haman, considered a traitor, a criminal. Haman, he lost everything. He lost his life. He lost his legacy. He lost his possessions. Haman lost everything. Though he thought he was rich, he was poor. Herodotus, Herodotus teaches us in ancient Persian history that when a criminal of a convicted traitorous crime in a kingdom, his estate is given back to the king. So Esther is given the estate, the house, all the possessions of Haman, and she in turn, out of love, gives it to Mordecai. And if that's not enough, Mordecai then, in verse 2, gets the signet ring. The signet ring that was given to Haman, as we read in Esther chapter 3, verse 13. That ring signifies power and authority. Mordecai now has the power and the authority. He is now second in command at King Ahasuerus' Persian Empire. Now this isn't the first time that we ever see God's favor on an exile in a foreign land receiving a signet ring. Remember the story of Joseph? Remember all the pain that Joseph endured with his family 
and then the accusations and the time in prison? Well, look at Genesis chapter 41, verse 42. It says, Then Pharaoh took the signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. God can show his favor on his chosen people. These signet rings were used as an official seal for the king. Not the kind of seal we see out in Monterey Bay, but a real seal like you use with a notary public. But even so much more. The word seal in scripture indicates security. It indicates authentication. It indicates approval. When you get the seal, you are certified as being genuine. You're identified as the owner. This seal is a big deal. He who has the ring has the power. Isn't that righteous vindication for Mordecai? He gets the very signet ring that Haman had been flaunting. And so we would write the story at the end of verse 3, we'd wrap that chapter up and we'd say, we're good. This is awesome. Mordecai, Esther, they've been vindicated. They win. They get the estate. They get the ring. They got the money. Let's wrap this baby up and let's move to a new book of the Bible. But Esther has been transformed into caring about the things of God more than she cares about the things of herself. She cares about the kingdom plan of her heavenly father, not just how it's affecting her. And so let's read in verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet, she wept, she pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and she stood before the king and she said, y'all remember what she said the last time? She's going to say it again. If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamathida, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my king, my kindred? Do you remember back? She struggled to even identify herself as a Jew. Mordecai told her, hey, keep that on the lowdown. Not everybody around here likes Jews. And so she was quiet about her faith. She was quiet about her heritage. She was quiet about her confession. And now in chapter 8, she's a new woman. Look at the wisdom that she is displaying. She's showing the emotion of what it would mean to her family, what it would mean to her people if they were annihilated by Haman's evil edict. 
Now she's fully embracing her heritage. Let's move on to verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. If I could just interpret that quickly for you. Ahasuerus is pretty much saying, I've given you the man's house, I've given you his ring, and I've given you his head. What more do you want? Isn't that enough? Because he doesn't get the things of God. And, but he does have favor on Esther. And so he answers in verse 8. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. In other words, what was done, sealed by the king's ring, I can't revoke that. But what I can let you do is counter it with another edict written and authorized in the name of my name, King Ahasuerus. And you can overcome that first edict. Remember these words. An edict written and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Let's move on to verse 9. The king's scribes are summoned the third month, the month of Sivan. On the 23rd day, an edict was written to all the Jews, satraps, governors, Ethiopians, Indians, and everything in between, 127 provinces. I'm summarizing because this is a long part. He wrote the name of the king. He sealed it with the king. He sent letters. He said this. Kings, in verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city together and to defend themselves, to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. This actually happens in chapter 9, so come back next week to hear the rest of the story. This is allowed on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy is written, it put in every uh, province, publicly displayed, so that the Jews could be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So those couriers mount their horses, their horses are amazing, and they take off and they put forth the king's command. And the decree was issued in the city of Susa, the citadel. This decree that Mordecai wrote was sent out in the third month of Sivan, which is June, July of the year 474 BC. 
they know historically that that was when it was sent out. This was just a little over two months after Haman's decree in chapter 3, verse 12. So the Jews had about nine months to prepare themselves for this war, to prepare themselves for this, contract, this conflict. As was the case with the previous decree, this one too was dispatched by horsemen sent from India to Ethiopia and was written in the appropriate languages of each province. The edict written by Mordecai with that stamp of authenticity and authority from King Ahasuerus gave the Jews the right to protect themselves. This edict gave them the right to self-defend themselves and their people. And their form of defense that they could take was to kill, to annihilate, and to plunder everything from people who were evilly against the Jews. When you read this passage, you have to go, that's a little harsh. That's a little harsh. Is, are we playing tit for tat? Are we playing you get me and I'll get you? No. If you remember Mordecai's, excuse me, Haman's edict before, what was the motivation for them killing the Jews? It was because they were of the race. They were proclaiming the one true God, and they were going to take out that race of people. This edict from Mordecai was not to take out a race of people. It was not say, you got us, we're going to get you. No, it is to defend themselves when they are being attacked. And the word got out nine months earlier than the folks could enact the first edict or enact the second edict. So they had nine months to make a decision. Am I going to get on the side of Haman, who had a really bad day? Or am I going to get on the side of Mordecai, who now holds the signet ring? Let's watch this story play out. Verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Well, I think that pretty much helps Mordecai's side, don't you think? He gets paraded around the city of Susa looking awfully kingly. And the people there are not crazy. They see, wow, he has the authority. He has the authenticity. He has the opportunity to fulfill his edict. And you know what's so fun to look in that verse in 15? There were shouts of joy and rejoicing. 
shouts of joy and rejoicing throughout the city of Susa. Can we pause for a second and just go back to chapter 4? In chapter 4, Haman's edict goes out. You remember the response? Let me read it to you. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out in the midst of the city. And he cried with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them in sackcloth and ashes. I don't know if you're stuck in chapter 4 as a follower of Christ. I don't know what you're bringing through this door today. And you don't feel very kingly. You don't feel very queenly. In fact, you may feel ashen. You may feel clothed in sackcloth. You may have taken a shot, or you may be at a place in your life, or your marriage, or with your family, or at work, and you just say, God, I feel stuck in chapter 4. And you know what I think God would say to you? It's okay for you to be there. It's okay. Because chapter 8 is coming. For my children. It's coming. It may not come quickly, but it's coming. I love that we sang a couple of songs this morning that directly quoted Psalm 30, verse 5. Matt, thank you for picking that song. For his anger is but for a moment, and his faithful, and excuse me, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. If you are struggling with a nighttime of sorrow, and you're struggling feeling the anger and the oppression that is against you, can I encourage you this morning that joy comes in the morning? It's coming. God has the ability to take our pain and he can turn it to pleasure. He can wipe away our tears from bewilderment and confusion and he can usher in light and joy and gladness and honor. Who needs that word this morning? I pray that you would receive it because our God sees, our God knows, and our God is faithful. He's faithful. His word is true. In verse 17 of Esther 8, it says, And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And then a little, And many from the peoples of this country declared themselves Jews. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. For fear of the Jews had fallen on them. What? 
Okay, so we get this gladness, we get the joy, we understand Jewish tradition enough that they're going to make a holiday out of it, and they're going to feast, and it is going to be amazing. And that feast is actually called Purim. And again, that plays out in chapter 9, and so we won't steal Drew's thunder, and we'll let him preach on that next Sunday, and we'll learn all about that feast. But many from the Persian Empire declared themselves Jews. These people were Gentiles. These people were Persian. Or they were Ethiopian. Or they were Indian. They were anything but from Judea. And what does it mean for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them? Could their confession of faith actually be genuine? Or was their motivation for that confession just fear of the power and control that Mordecai had? These questions bring to light so much about what this is exactly about. It's about salvation. One of my favorite parts, I was talking with Dick about it, was back at a previous church that I served in for a stretch of time, I had the privilege of getting to be part of the membership process when people would join our church. And for those of you that have been in that process, you, it's like you sit down with someone and you hear them share with you their story, their confession of when they proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and they followed Him in obedience with baptism, and you go, how tender and precious is it that I get to sit and witness and listen to these people and their public confession of when Christ took them from death and brought them to life. And then there's those harder ones. When you hear their story and you go, hmm? I don't really get that one. And you then have to shepherd through in a very difficult and shrewd conversation because the church is made up of regenerate followers of Christ. It is not made up of people who just said the right thing or prayed the right prayer or was persuaded by mom or dad that I needed to say this or do that. How can, you, how can you see genuine faith in Christ? And I think I personally would say, thank you, Father, that I'm not the judge. I'm not the judge. It isn't to me to know this genuineness or this fake. Is this real and authentic? Or is this just what people do? But God is, and he knows. And he tests the heart of all mankind. I would love for us to look at another passage that shows similarly what was happening right here in Esther chapter 8, verse 16. Compare, comparing the Hebrew word fear in 8.16 
the exact same words are used in Joshua 2, verses 8 through 11. So bear with me. It's the story of Rahab the harlot. When she professes her confession of faith in the one true God. Verse 8 of Joshua 2. Before the men lay down, she, Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the men, these two spies who were sent by Joshua, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Hallelujah. What a confession from Rahab the harlot. And for those of you who know, she is identified for her great faith in the one true God. What a remarkable conversation. Rahab climbs to the roof of her home, happens to run into and talk to these two spies in the darkness, and she makes a declaration of faith. She disclosed, disclosed that she believed that the Lord, the God of Israel, was strong enough to part the waters of the Red Sea, was strong enough to take down the enemies of the Jews, and she says, I want to follow that God. Could that be the same thing that is occurring here in Esther chapter 8? Who knows what God uses to motivate a true confession of faith? He can use a series of circumstances. He can use fear. I think he can personally use whatever he dadgum wants to use. And I would ask you, think deep into your heart of your confession of faith. What was it that God did to bring you from death to life, to bring you from darkness to the light, to bring you from thinking you were good enough to knowing that you're not good enough and that you need the blood of Christ to cover you. Well, how else does chapter 8 of Esther apply to us here in Santa Cruz today in 2022? I'd like to just show three things. First, what about our estate, our mansion, or our beach house? Is our focus here on earth, or is our focus on our heavenly home? John 14, 2 says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I think God wants us to lift our eyes sometimes on this state 
of affairs that we're in right here on this earth and say, look to your eternal home. And secondly, what are you investing in? Are you investing everything in things here on earth? Are you investing in things that will matter eternally? This crazy little Christmas tree giveaway? What if someone came, saw the love of Christ, was prayed for, was broken, and they said, I want what they've got. And they gave their life to Christ. And 20 years from now, they're saying there was some church in Santa Cruz that gave a Christmas tree away. And that's when I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Wouldn't that be cool? That, my friends, is an eternal investment in heaven. 2 Corinthians 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The one who is rich, Jesus Christ, had everything, yet he became poor. He made himself nothing. He assumed our debt of sin and he paid for it with his life. Jesus Christ became what they were, which is poor, so that we could become what he was and he is, which is rich. And we should rejoice in that. The second application today deals with the ring. Not just any ring, but a signet ring. Do you have that ring? Have you been given that ring? Is it real or is it fake? The ring you received is sealed by the Holy Spirit. He lives within you. He authenticates you. For Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So brothers and sisters, when you heard the gospel, did you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Did you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Do you believe in the power of the same God who split the waters in the Red Sea? Who brought dead to life? Are you saved is the question. Are you transformed into the image of Christ? When we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And that guarantees our inheritance. That gives us security when the storms of life hit us. If you're struggling with, am I saved, am I not saved? Satan may just be playing tricks with your mind. If you have genuinely received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can say to him, I have security in Christ. I have the ring. When you have the ring, you are authentically genuine. Your identification of ownership is not in your own goodness 
but you are sealed until that day through the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we should rejoice in that. We should rejoice in that. Even if we're stuck in chapter 4, we should rejoice in that. And finally, the third application is the end. How will our story end? Here's how it began. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And sadly, what happened? Man ate, and we all die. James 1.15 says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. Don't be deceived, beloved brothers. That is humbling. That's a bit scary. That's the truth. The wages of sin is death, period. Whether we like it or not, whether churches preach that or not, it's the truth. There is consequence to sin, and that sin leads to death. Oh, I'm pretty good. Yeah, whatever. We see it from age one and a half on. These kids just have it in their nature to sin. And you know what? We just get better at it through the years, don't we? That sin has a consequence. That decree from Genesis 2 is irrevocable. That's a scary statement. That decree from Genesis 2 is irrevocable. When we sin, it brings death. Praise the Lord that the Bible doesn't end in Genesis 2. But the story keeps going. And as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, God has the last word. Satan thought he had won when Jesus was hung on the tree. But in a powerful plot twist, early that Sunday morning, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We, my friends, were headed toward death because of our sin. And God stepped in and intervened, and he has saved us. God did not set aside the law of sin and death. He did not ignore our sin. He did not pretend that our sin is not there. He did not set it aside as if we have not sinned. God sent his son Jesus, and he introduced a new covenant one that would fulfill the law and would enable us to overcome separation from God. In Romans 8, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. 
For what the law was powerless to do in Esther 4, in Genesis 2, in Romans 8, God did by sending his own son into the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but we live according to the spirit of God who is alive inside of us. And so we say, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I get to live in Esther chapter eight with a new edict. From a God who has the last word. He didn't nullify the first law. That first law had to stand. And that first law still stands to this day. Sin brings death. But Jesus, through his blood, introduced a new law of the spirit of life that frees us from the law of sin and death. Isn't this good news? And what did the people do when they received the good news in Esther 8? They rejoiced. They feasted. They created a holiday. I don't know if they named it Thanksgiving. But we have the opportunity as brothers and sisters in Christ to rejoice. We win. We win. Even if you're in a trial today, we win. Even if you are in a humble circumstance and you are being brought low and you feel like you're wearing ash and sackcloth, if you are a child of God, you win. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Will you pray with me?